Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. My name is Brad Constantine, and for this discussion, we're going to actually be covering 2 Nephi chapter 7. So you've gotten pretty far here in the Book of Mormon. So far, we're in 2 Nephi, and this happens to be, however, a chapter of Isaiah. Maybe I shouldn't have said that at the beginning, huh? Uh, this is also the equivalent of Isaiah chapter 50. However, uh, there are some differences between this version and the Book of Mormon version, um, or the Isaiah version out of the Bible and, and the Book of Mormon. Um, but the Book of Mormon follows the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic text, which means that the the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was uh, back in around the second or third centuries BC, which was uh, written by, was translated from Hebrew into Greek by about 70 scholars. They actually think it might have been 72 scholars. Uh, they got six scholars from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to do this, and and uh, so we have that. And so this version follows more closely the Septuagint rather than the one that was written about a thousand years before. Uh, the King James Version is the latest version um, of the scriptures and the one that has strayed the most from the original text. And that's a quote from Hugh Nibley. So let's go ahead and get into this. Um, so chapter 7 of 2 Nephi or chapter 50 of Isaiah. Verse 1, Yea, for thus saith the Lord, have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? Now, there's a couple of things in here that uh, Isaiah is using that are absurdities that would never happen, and so he's using this as kind of a hyperbole uh, to, to show the ridiculousness of some of this, and this is one of them. Uh, has Jesus put us away, or will he ever do so? For thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away? Or... To which of my creditors, again, this is an absurdity because Jesus has no creditors, have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. So the Lord has not divorced us nor sold us into slavery. God cannot ever be in debt. Through sin, they have actually sold themselves. And from Victor Ludlow, he says, In the time of Isaiah, if a man was pressed by his creditors, he had the possibility of relieving his debt by selling his children as slaves. And if he died, a creditor might take his children as payment. This slavery was not permanent. The person was indentured to work for a fixed number of years. In answer to the question, To whom has the Lord ever been in debt? Isaiah answers that the Lord is indebted to no one, and therefore has not been forced to sell Israel. Israel's separation and captivity is their own fault. Um, verse 2, Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. When I called, yea, there was none to answer. O house of Israel, is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make their rivers a wilderness, and their fish to stink, because no, the, the waters are dried up, and they dieth for, uh, because of thirst. So here he's he's, he's going to indicate that uh, that uh, that his 
that at his will he can do these things. He can dry up the seas if he wants to. Elder Holland said, These children will have a happy home and sealed parents yet. In the last days, the bill of divorcement against their mother will be set aside, and so will the demands of any creditors. The Lord is in debt to no one, so neither will his children be. He alone can pay the price for the salvation of Israel and the establishment of Zion. His wrath is turned away, and he will not cast off his bride or allow her children to be sold into slavery. As for the shortening of his hands, the scriptures repeatedly testify that the reach of God's arm is more than adequate, the extent of his grace entirely sufficient. He can always claim and embrace the Israel that he loves. In spite of their unfaithfulness, his hand remains constant, not shortened or slackened or withheld. Verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord said in Matthew uh, chapter 25, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, maybe earthquakes and volcanic activity will cover the heavens with blackness. Elder McConkie said, I clothe the heavens with blackness, and there is no more revelation. Thus saith our God, such is his promise, spoken prophetically of our day. And here, given in modern times, is his announcement that, he, that as he spake, so has it come to pass. Verily I say unto you, darkness covereth the earth, and gross darkness the minds of the people. And all flesh has become corrupt before my face. And that's Doctrine and Covenants, section 112.23. The blackness may also symbolize mourning for the destruction of the wicked at the second coming. Now, in this one, verses, uh, back to the scriptures, verses 4 through 9 is known as the servant song. Christ is the servant during the meridian of time. One of the difficulties that the Jews had anciently was that they were looking for two, they were looking for a different Messiah. In the book of Isaiah, he refers to the Messiah in two different ways, one as a servant Messiah and another as the king Messiah, one who would come as a conqueror. And the Jews were always looking for the King Messiah to overthrow their uh, those that had that, that were uh, overseeing them, like the Romans when Jesus was alive. And so they misunderstood and didn't recognize him when he came as the servant Messiah. And here uh, Isaiah is talking about the servant Messiah in verses four through nine. Uh, the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. Christ will speak with knowledge and eloquence, and that I should know how to speak a word in season. Unto thee, O house of Israel, when ye are weary, he will know what to say at the right time. He waketh, he wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear as the learned. He received revelation, in other words. Verse 5, the Lord God opened mine ears, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. In other words, he fulfilled his mission. Verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the beard. The servant gave his cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. The Oriental regarded the beard as a sign of freedom and respect, and to pluck out the hair of the beard is to show utter contempt. Now, I'm wondering, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just wondering if, because this was a prophecy about Jesus, uh, we know that he gave his back to the smiters and that they, uh, that they beat him severely. Um, it doesn't mention anything in the scriptures about his beard being, being pulled out, but I wonder if, if the other prophecies were fulfilled, if that wasn't also... Now, that might give us an explanation of why Peter was able to say, I don't know who that is, because maybe Jesus didn't have the beard by then, or parts of it were plucked out. Uh, again, speculation, I don't know that for sure. Back to verse 6, And I hid, my, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. 
First uh, Nephi 19 says, And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it, and they smite him, and he, sm he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. This obviously has reference to the mortal ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was scourged according to the Roman practice of scourging. Flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators or soldiers, except in cases of diversion, a desertion, were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths, in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing, and his hands were tied in an upright post or to an upright post. The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who, alter, with, who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the person doing it, and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. After the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victims. Um, and so the phrase, I hid not my face from shame and spitting, is fulfilled twice. When Jesus was before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, he was spat upon. This happened again at the hands of the Roman soldiers. They did, Then did they, the members of the Sanhedrin, spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, O thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? And when they, meaning the Roman soldiers, had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. When I was in Israel, we visited a place that was uh, the, the palace of Caiaphas. And uh, the tour guide that we had had mentioned, and in fact, he showed us a place where they, uh, where they scourged people and there were um, holes in the rocks over your head and holes in the rocks at your feet and so they would tie their feet so that their legs were apart and then their hands up in the air uh, to the ceiling and then um, then they would beat them and the way that he explained the scourging was that they would they would beat them um, 13 times and then they would stop and make sure the person was awake and they would clean up their wounds. They would put vinegar and salt water uh, to wipe their, their back or their uh, other parts that had been beaten until they were cleaned up. Then they would beat them 13 more times and do the same thing, make sure that they were awake and clean them up and then do it 13 more times so that they were beaten 39 times. Uh, but each time they were awoken, made sure that they were awake so that they didn't pass out and not, uh, not feel the pain. And so this was quite an art that they did to make sure that, this, that the sufferer uh, suffered as much as possible. Verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And what that means is that Jesus had set his face toward the cross, toward Gethsemane, and nothing was going to divert him from that. He had fixed his, uh, in his mind that this was his mission and goal, and he was not going to be diverted from that. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. Elder McConkie said of the Savior, the course of his life was toward the cross and he was steadfast and immovable in his determination to follow this very course, one laid out for him by his father. Clearly, there was no turning back. President Hinckley said, we cannot say it frequently enough. Turn away from your youthful lusts. Stay away from drugs. They can absolutely destroy you. Avoid them as you would a, a terrible disease, for that is what they become. 
Avoid foul and filthy talk. It can lead to destruction. Be absolutely honest. Dishonesty can corrupt and destroy. Observe the word of wisdom. You cannot smoke. You must not smoke. You must not chew tobacco. You cannot drink liquor. You must rise above these things which beckon with a seductive call. Be prayerful. Call on the Lord in faith, and he will hear heal he will hear your prayers. He loves you. He wishes to bless you. He will do so if you live worthy of his blessing. That was from President Hinckley. Verse 8, And the Lord is near, and he justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. This is like two lawyers standing together to plead their cases. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near me, and I will smite him with the strength of my mouth. For the Lord God will help me, and all they which shall condemn me. Behold, all they shall wax old as a garment, and the moth shall eat them up. In other words, those that accuse us uh, will not last because of the atonement of Christ. Verse 10, Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord, and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, this expression refers to those who walk in their own way, according to their own will, rather than according to the will and direction of the Lord. Walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that ye have kindled, this shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. And so that's the end of uh, chapter 7. Um, this has reference to the judgments that will come upon the wicked in the last days. In verse 7, he's referring to an event that took place during Christ's mortal ministry. In verse 8, he's referring to an event that will take place during his second coming. So, as mentioned in the, in the front part of this, uh, in the uh, um, heading to the chapter, he's also mentioning here that he, Isaiah is speaking messianically, meaning he's talking about the Messiah or the Savior. And, uh, and so we can better understand Isaiah when we understand the context in which it's given. Um, the Lord said that vengeance is mine, I will repay. In this instance, the vengeance of the Lord um, is, pa is patiently held in reserve for approximately 2,000 years. Then the wicked will receive their just reward. Isaiah describes the wicked in verses 9 through 11, and then promises, this, this shall ye have of mine hand, ye shall lie down in sorrow. This is a good example of how, how Isaiah is speaking messianically. Also, this is commonly done in Isaiah's and other prophet writings. There is no statement which makes it clear that these events will occur in two separate appearances or that the Messiah will be crucified before any of the apocalyptic punishments will be administered. In the meridian of time, there was confusion about what things the Messiah would do. The Jews expected Christ to destroy their enemies and become a political leader. They had a history of military heroes who were referred to as saviors. The Messiah was expected to come to deliver the Jews from the oppression of the Romans. Without the benefit of hindsight, it would have been difficult to know which prophecies referred to Christ's first coming and which applied to his second, unless one had been had seen it in vision, as had Nephi and Jacob. And so that's what I'm saying at the first, is that the Jews have misunderstood uh, the Messiah, the prophecies about the Messiah. When they talk about the King Messiah, they were expecting him to come during his mortal life but he won't come as King Messiah until the second coming. His first coming was as the Messiah, uh, the servant Messiah. I bear testimony of the truth of these things and that as we uh, study Isaiah, we can gain a better understanding and appreciation for the prophecies that he gave and uh, that we can understand them better. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I hope you like this and can save and or can uh, share and all those other things you're supposed to do. See you next time. A little bit more Isaiah too, bye.